Well, at this time, it gives me, as always, great honor and privilege to be able to bring to this pulpit today the, uh, the beautiful, elegant First Lady of Victorious Life Church, Pastor Terry Barton. Honey, would you come? Good morning. I'm kind of speechless here for a minute. <laughs> uh, the song we sang um, this morning. I give myself away. I just wanted to say a few words about that. When you think about that, I give myself away. That means that I'm putting all of my will, all of my selfishness, all of the things that would have stood in between God's call, God's timing, what he's telling me to do, I'm putting it away. That was my fourth confirmation. Just the music this morning, the words that were spoken, was my fourth con confirmation. So I'm going to tell you how the theme for my message arrived. It was clearly laid out for me by God. I've learned that God uses a particular method through which he communicates to me, and this is how it happened this time. It's happened like this probably three or four times now, and I'm, it's kind of like, oh, hey, I think I'm starting to get this. So I knew I was going to be preaching soon. Of course, I'd been praying and asking the Lord to reveal to me what he would have me to share. At the same time, New Year had just arrived. The New Year had just arrived, and I had made a new commitment that I was going to make a trip through the Word of God again this year. So I began to read in Joshua. I don't, I don't like to do the Genesis, Exodus. I'll just kind of, wherever I start is where I start, and then I just make sure I get to all those books before the year is over. So I'm reading in Joshua one, one morning, and the next morning I go into my room, and on the nightstand I have this, this particular Bible is very special to me. It's my father's Bible. It is amplified. It's very old, but this is just the Old Testament part. It, it, is in, it came in three different books, and this one was the Old Testament, and it was laying there open. And I hadn't read in it for a while, but it was laid open to 1 Samuel. And I thought to myself, well, maybe I will just pick this up, and I'll read here for a while. Of course, I got caught up in the story, and every day I kept going back to 1 Samuel and then on to 2 Samuel, and, and you know how it goes. Whenever I read like this, I have these questions that I've never had before, and that's just how I am. I always have questions. So if I've asked you these questions when I read through it once, I'm going to have 10 more next time I read through it again. And that's a good thing. And so I began to discuss some of these questions with my husband, Pastor Gary. And one question in particular led to the discussion of honesty and dishonesty, obedience and disobedience. 
A few days later, we had our MIP class. Our guests were teaching. One of them quoted the scripture, to obey is better than sacrifice. Immediately, I recognized that I had just read that scripture, so I turned to Google, and I found that it was 1 Samuel 15, chapter 15, verse 4. The impact of that scripture hit very heavy on my heart. And the fact that I had just been reading this portion of the Bible and discussing this theme was the beginning of the inspiration of what God would have me to share this morning. The next morning, I continued reading in 1 Samuel. And then I went to read from a book by one of my favorite, favorite authors, John Bevere. How many have read John Bevere? I have read many of his books. And I got captivated. I started reading. I was halfway through or so in, in a book that I have on my Kindle. And I started reading right where I was. And I became captivated in the story he was telling. At the very end of his story, he quotes that God was speaking to him. And what do you think God said? Son, I don't want your sacrifice. I desire obedience. I just went, okay. That's it. Once again, I knew God had brought the original inspiration, and he had confirmed it twice. And to me, that's amazing. And then this morning, I believe he was talking again about our obedience, laying ourselves down. It's not like, oh, I'm giving all of myself away for you, Jesus. No, it's, God, I'm giving that stuff. I'm giving it up. I'm giving it up. I'm sacrificing myself for you this morning. So, now we're going to talk about this. Let's look primarily at the book of 1 Samuel. I'm going to set the stage with three separate incidents of disobedience that stood out to me. Do we have a PowerPoint? Oh, there we go. Let's go to point number one. The people are disobedient. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 7, we read, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of the second, Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, and they accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elder elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. In considering this passage, it's important to notice that God speaks in the literal sense when he says the people are rejecting him. You see, God has been their king. He's been serving as their king. They're not just rejecting him as their God. They're rejecting him from the position of king that he had established with them. When did he establish it? Well, originally, he established a covenant with Abram around 2084 B.C. 
This covenant was reconfirmed at later dates with Abraham, with Abram, and then Moses received the law, which was God's law, the Ten Commandments, on Mount Sinai, shortly after the passing through the Red Sea. The establishing of this covenant or law follows the same form of treaties or covenants made between ancient kings and their subjects back in that time. The people of that day would immediately have recognized the implication. God was establishing the covenant basis for his rule as king over Israel. During the flight from Egypt through the Red Sea, the contest is one of King Pharaoh versus God. And we know that God triumphed and Pharaoh was defeated. The people understood that God was now their king, and they sang hymns that indicated in which they declared. In Exodus 15, 18, the, it says, The Lord reigns forever and ever. They knew he was their king. There are various scriptures throughout the Bible that tell of God's promise to go before and behind his people, as a king would do, and examples of that would be found in Exodus 23, 23, Isaiah 45, 2, and Isaiah 52, 12. And I'll just read that one from the version of the, mes the message version of the Bible. But you don't have to be in a hurry. You're not running from anybody. God is leading you out of here, and the God of Israel is also your rear guard. So he went before and he went behind. So the people are disobedient, and Samuel is angry. Well, why would he be angry? I think there might be several reasons. But I'll say, number one, in the flesh, he could be angry because the request for a king is a personal rebuke to Samuel. You see, if they elect to have a king, then Samuel no longer functions as the judge. He's still a prophet, and the king will continue to come to him in order to hear from God and to receive the services of a prophet, like making offerings and sacrifices at the altar. But Samuel will no longer function as a judge. And spiritually, I think Samuel could be angry because he sees the disloyalty of the people for their God. And he's more than concerned for the spiritual welfare of the Israelites. Yes, Samuel's angry, but he does not act on his anger. In verse 6 of 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see that Samuel prays to God. Here's an example of how we are to react as well. Don't react when you're angry. What should you do? Take it to God first. Get his direction. Many times he has a different idea about how to respond than you do. Let God respond. God tells Samuel what his take on this matter is, and he, just as we've just discussed, what does he say? He says, Samuel, they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me. And then surprisingly, he says, listen to what they're saying. Go ahead. Give them a warning and then tell them what they should consider if they choose to have an earthly king. What should they consider? There's much to consider. And just a few examples would be their sons and their daughters. What about their sons and daughters? Well, they'll be taken to serve the king. The sons will be in an army. The daughters in the palace kitchen, or maybe in the laundry room, or cleaning crew, on the cleaning crew. And secondly, one-tenth of their crops and income 
would go toward the upkeep of a king and his kingdom. In short, folks, life on the farm is going to be a whole lot different, and they're going to be much poorer, and they're going to have to work much harder as a result. But the Bible says that these people still refuse to even hear the voice of Samuel. Samuel goes back to God after he has told them, he has warned them, and they still say, no, we want a king. Samuel goes back to God and he whispers in God's ears everything he's just been told by these people. And again, God's response, I told you, give them what they asked for, Samuel. Appoint a king for them. The people wanted to be like the other cities around them. They wanted pomp and circumstance. It didn't matter what price they would pay. They'd look better. They'd fit in. They believed that their subjection to foreign powers was due to inadequate leadership. But this was not the case. The real problem is their sin. Because the people were insistent, continually asking for a king, God gives them a king. Does that ring a bell for us? How many times have we prayed, and instead of asking for our will to line up with his, we've asked explicitly for our selfish desires. We don't see the whole picture. We don't see the truth. And we don't consider that possibly what we're asking isn't for our, isn't good for our good, and it isn't for our best. How many times have we stepped back from righteous living and holy standards in order to fit in with the ideas of the world? In doing so, we have allowed God to be our king. First off, we've prayed amiss. Secondly, we've disobeyed because we have not aligned ourselves with him. We have placed ourselves and our desires on the throne of our hearts. It's hard to obey. Hard, hard, hard to obey. But it's easy or easier to sacrifice. God is calling us back to himself. He wants obedience. So Samuel has now been commissioned by God to anoint a king. All of Israel is watching to see who is going to be selected. Through a series of events, Saul is anointed king, but he's anointed secretly under the authorship of God, but he is anointed secretly by Samuel. And it happens much earlier than when he comes to the official reign. They say he was like 40 years old, and the reason I say they say he was like, there was um, translating from the Hebrew to the current um, translations that we have, when they went, they had difficulty translating the numbers because the Hebrew language, their number is, numbers are all in Roman, Roman numerals. I'm sorry, I tripped over my tongue. So they're all in Roman numerals, and from all of my reading, it was difficult for them to translate the numbers correctly. So when you look at this story in the Bible about Saul and the age that he was when he was anointed, and the age that, or first anointed, and the age that he was when he came to reign, they're not absolutely certain about those ages. So that's why I say he was about 40 when he came to the official appointment. Okay, so 
He has, been, he has been officially appointed about 40 years old, but between the time of that secret anointing and the official appointment, there's a whole lot that happens in his life, and a whole lot of change takes place in his character. See, Saul was completely taken by surprise that he'd even be considered to be a king. But God then uses Samuel to prophesy events to come in Saul's life, and as those events take place, Saul begins to be convinced that God has ordained this appointment. Isn't that how he works? God brings the prophetic to us through godly people, maybe through dreams, and he foretells events to come. And as those events begin to be fulfilled, our eyes are opened to God's will and his direction. If we will only listen, if we will stay sensitive and alert to the Holy Spirit, and if we will obey. Even when it's hard, even when it's not what we want to do, God will fulfill his plan and purpose for us in the big picture of his kingdom work. In 1 Samuel 10:8, Samuel instructs Saul and the people, Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Okay. In the meantime, Samuel then looks back toward the people after he's given the instructions to Saul to go to Gilgal. Samuel looks back toward the people and he addresses them regarding the integrity of his own service to them. Through a series of questions, Samuel clears himself of any possible accusation of wrongdoing in the performance of his duties as judge to Israel. On every account, the people respond that Samuel is not guilty Thus, Samuel's name is cleared prior to the appointment, the official appointment of king, of, the, of, the, of Saul. Samuel rehearses all that God has done for the Israelite people, his chosen people throughout their history. From the time of the Exodus until this moment, he declares, if you will hearken to the voice of the Lord and not rebel against his commandment, and if you and your king will follow the Lord God, it will be good. And then he says, he counters and says, if you do not hearken to the voice of the Lord and you rebel against his commandment, the hand of the Lord will be against you, just like it was against your fathers. Then Samuel tells them, watch the great thing that God is about to do right here in your sight. Samuel calls upon the Lord to send thunder and rain, and this is to demonstrate how that the wickedness that they have done by requesting a king was so great in the eyes of God. Take note, when this storm comes up, it is during the time of the wheat harvest. That wheat is all ready to be harvested. This storm is going to be detrimental to their crop. But the storm comes, just like Samuel prophesies, or just like he calls out to God and says it will happen. The storm comes with thunder and rain. The people are afraid. They cry out, asking God, or asking Samuel, pray to God that we will not die. And then they acknowledge, yes, our sin is great. And Samuel's response at that point is, don't fear. Indeed, you have sinned, but don't turn aside from following the Lord. Serve him with all of your heart. The Lord will not forsake his people. 
And I will not sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will continue to instruct you in the good and right way. Sounds to me like Samuel gave himself away, too. He stepped out of the way. He's been insulted by this. You know he had to be if he was in the flesh. He's insulted by this. But then he says, I will not fail to continue to lead you. I will not, I will not fail to continue to pray for you. In other words, I will continue to serve you, even though you said you didn't want me in the capacity that I was serving you up to this point. So God has relented. He has given them a king, and he continues to strive with the people of Israel. Now let's go on to point two. Point two, Saul's first recorded disobedience. Saul is two years into his reign as official reign as king. He and the Israelites have gone to Gilgal, just as Samuel had instructed, and they've been waiting for Samuel to arrive in order for that sacrifice to be made prior to going into war. This was practice. They need to make a sacrifice before they go into a battle. This was custom. It's going to have to happen. Sometimes they put more faith in that sacrifice than trusting God, though. Things are intensifying. The Philistines have far outnumbered Saul and his men. Saul's army is growing more fearful with each passing moment. They're hiding in caves, in holes, in rocks, in tombs, and pits, anywhere that they can find to escape. Some have even crossed the Jordan and entered into the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul and his army are still holding the fort, but they're holding it impatiently. It is day number seven. Samuel told Saul to wait seven days. Where is that Samuel? Apparently, that seven-day wait was a test of patience and dependence upon God. Saul is more than frustrated. He decides that he's done with this waiting. And this response shows a variety of weaknesses that made Saul yet unfit as king his impatience, and his self-reliance. Saul calls for the offerings, and he makes the sacrifice himself. This act demonstrates that Saul does not want to work together with Samuel. Saul does not want to obey God. He'd rather take control of that situation himself. But you know what? The king is expected to follow the Lord's commands. This is a foolish mistake, and... It was totally forbidden. Another indirect reason that Saul's actions were wrong is that Saul was not a priest or a Levite. Thus, he could not legally offer a burnt offering. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, not the tribe of Levi. He was not to do the work of a priest. And just as Saul is finishing the sacrifice, who do you think arrives? Samuel arrives, and he says, You have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command that the Lord your God gave you. It's clear through this example that God desires our obedience. Patience is often needed to fully follow God's word. But we must remember there are negative consequences when we choose our own way rather than God's. It may not be easy. It may not be convenient. But obeying God's word is the best choice for our lives and for our service to others. 
Let's examine one more point, point number three, Saul's second recorded disobedience. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, we read, Samuel has instructed Saul to go and inflict a heavy blow on the Amalekites. Yet another battle. He is to completely destroy all that they have. He is not to spare the people, man, woman, or child. He is to kill all the oxen, all the sheep, all the camels, and all the donkeys. Wipe it out. Wipe it all out. All of it. If you've never read the story or heard the story, I'm sure you already know the plot, right? Saul does not follow the orders. Samuel confronts Saul about the outcome of the battle, and Saul's response is, I obeyed the Lord. I went on the mission. I inflicted a heavy blow on Amalek, and I killed all the people. Mm, well, except for the king, Agag. But it was the soldiers. The soldiers wanted to keep the best of the sheep and the cattle and, and the best of what was devoted to God. They brought these things back, you know, in order to make a sacrifice to the Lord at Gilgal. That's why. Saul's lying to Samuel, and in essence, he's lying to God. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Samuel says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. Saul's disobedience is an act of rebellion, iniquity, or sin, and idolatry. And Saul admits he's been seeking the approval of man. Obedience and sacrifice. Most of us don't care that much for either obedience or sacrifice. But if we must choose one or the other, a little religious sacrifice is most likely what most would try to substitute for genuine obedience to God. Let me give you an example. We're going to learn the value of obedience. So let's play a game. You guys are going to play let's pretend with me, okay? So let's pretend that you work for me. In fact, you're my executive assistant in a rapidly growing company. As owner of the company, I'm interested in expanding overseas. In order to pull this off, I've made plans to travel abroad and stay there until the new branch office gets established. I make all the arrangements to take my family and the move to Europe for six to eight months, and I leave you in charge. You're in charge of that busy stateside organization. I tell you that I will write regularly, and I give you direction and instruction. I leave, you stay. Months pass. A flow of letters are sent from Europe, and they are received by you at the national headquarters. I spell out all my expectations. Finally, I return. Soon after my arrival, I drive down to the office. I am stunned. Grass and weeds have grown up high. A few windows along the street are broken. I walk into the receptionist's office, and there she sits doing her nails, chewing gum, and listening to her favorite rock station. I look around, and I notice that the wastebaskets are overflowing. The carpet has not been vacuumed for weeks, and no one, absolutely no one, seems to be concerned that the owner has now returned. 
I ask where you are, and someone in the crowded lounge area points down the hall and yells, I think he's down there. Disturbed, I move in that direction, and I bump into you as you are finishing a a chess game with our sales manager. I ask you, can you step in my office for a moment, please? Oh, which, by the way, that office has been temporarily turned into a television room for watching afternoon soap operas. What in the world is going on here, man? Uh, What do you mean, Terry? (laughs) Well, look at this place. Didn't you get my letters? Letters? Oh, yeah, sure. I got every one of them. As a matter of fact, Terry, we've had letter study every Friday night since you left. We've even divided all the personnel into small groups, and we've discussed many of the things that you wrote. Some of those things were really interesting. And you'll be pleased to know that a few of us have actually memorized some of your sentences and paragraphs. One guy even memorized an entire letter or two. Great stuff in those letters. Okay, okay. You got my letters. You studied them. You discussed them. And even memorized them. But then what did you do? Do? Uh... We didn't do anything. We know of someone who went away. He told us that he was going. He left this book full of letters, and they are full of instruction and direction. He told us that he would send an assistant or a comforter to help us. Have we read his letters? Have we memorized his letters? What part of the instructions in the letters have we done? Any? Any part at all? What have we done? Our creator, our God, our king desires our obedience. He wants us to give ourselves away. 1 Samuel 15, 24 through 28. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I might worship the Lord. And Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught a hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and he has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. Can you hear the gavel fall? Saul's kingship is over. It's not immediate, but it's definitely over. Even though he remains in office, his effectiveness is now diminished, and God is no longer empowering him. King Saul made a series of very serious blunders in his lifetime, beginning with an unauthorized sacrificial offering, and then a downward spiral as he failed to eliminate all of the Amalekites and their livestock as commanded. 
the end of which was the downfall of his kingship. He was allowed to serve out the rest of his life as king, but he was plagued by an evil spirit. And that evil spirit tormented him and brought about waves of madness. His final years were profoundly tragic as he endured periods of deep manic depression. There was a general decline in his service to the nation and in his personal fortunes. And he spent much of his time, energy, and expense trying to kill David rather than in consolidating the gains of his earlier victories. Point four, Saul's final recorded act of disobedience. Due to Saul's decline in service and his distraction trying to kill David, the Philistines sensed an opening for a major victory over Israel. With a large army, they crushed Saul's troops killing all of his sons, including his beloved son, Jonathan. In the final chapter of 1 Samuel, in chapter 30, Saul commits his final act of disobedience. He takes his own life by falling on his sword, thus ending a promising life on a final note of shame. Folks, I wish to bring warning to the house this morning. Continued disobedience will, in fact, cause us to lose the blessing of God in our lives. Let us guard ourselves. Let us not continue to attempt to just look good in service to the Lord. Obedience isn't measured by mere outward compliance with the rules. Do you remember the Pharisees, those uppity guys in the Bible, who thought they were so holy because they technically kept the law? Jesus exposed them for the hypocrites that they really were, and he rebuked them. He said, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. That's Matthew 23, 25. Now, imagine drinking out of a cup that had never been cleaned on the inside. Yuck! Worse, Jesus compared them to whitewashed tombs. They were attractive on the outside, but with a decaying body hidden inside. These illustrations were Jesus' way of telling the Pharisees that outward conformity did not cut it. It's simply a show. Superficial actions aren't true obedience because true obedience comes from the heart. We are only modern Pharisees if we do all the right things, but our hearts are not in it. Simply doing what we're told is not enough. Genuine obedience isn't measured by politeness to elders, nor by a facade of compliance or statements about our love for God. True obedience starts way down deep in the heart. But I also want to bring encouragement to the house this morning through these words. Obedience keeps us within what Ted Tripp calls the circle of great blessing. There is security in obedience because we know that God's ways are perfectly safe. There is joy and peace because we know that God himself is guiding us and we are happy because we are pleasing God. These blessings are ours if we choose to live a life of obedience. Let's look in Deuteronomy 28, 
God takes 14 verses to lay out the immense blessings of obedience, and here is just a sampling. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will command the blessing on you in all that you undertake, and the Lord will make you abound in prosperity. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall only go up and not down. If you obey the commands of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. Wow. God's blessings for obedience are nothing short of spectacular. Some of you here this morning may hear my words, but you're still not convinced that the blessings of the Lord are of much interest to you. You may think that independence is more fun or that true freedom is doing what you want to do. Those ideas are only illusions. Pastor and author John Piper vividly illustrates this point when he writes, There are sensations of unbounded independence that are not true freedom because they deny truth and are destined for calamity. For example, two women may jump from an airplane and experience the thrilling freedom of a free fall, of free falling. But there is a difference. One is encumbered by a parachute on her back, and the other is free from this burden. Which person is most free? The one without the parachute feels free, even freer, because she does not feel the constraints of that parachute. But she is not truly free. She is in bondage to the force of gravity and to the deception that all is well because she feels unencumbered. This false sense of freedom is in fact bondage to calamity, which is sure to happen after a fleeting moment of pleasure. I can assure you faith in God and obedience to him is your only, only, only pathway to true freedom. In spite of all of his weaknesses, foolishness, and sins, God used Saul to deliver Israel from bondage to the surrounding nations. All throughout history, God has chosen to use the weak and the foolish. He has used these things to, uh, to confound He's used these things, of, I'm sorry, these things of the world to confound the wise and bring glory to himself. If God can use a man like Saul, we can be assured that he can use us too. God is not limited to using perfect people. He does not excuse our imperfections or our sins, but he gives us hope 
and he does use frail, sinful people to accomplish his purposes. So now my question to you, how many of you here today will now stand, and if you're not physically able, we, we understand that, but how many of you will stand as a sign to God that you long to be used for his purpose? How many of you want to renew the kingdom, the kingdom of your heart, and reestablish God as the ruler in your life and not yourself? I believe God is calling us to earnest renewal. He's calling us to honesty with him, openness with him. If you have not made God the king of your life today, today's the day. This is the hour, this is the moment, this is the time, and this is the place. It couldn't be any more perfect. God is waiting. The altar is open. You're desiring for him to be the king and the Lord of your life. To trust him and to serve him in all of your ways. If I'm describing you, step out and come right now. In Jesus' name. Yes. Let's go back to that song, I Give Myself Away. The Lord's waiting for you. The Lord's waiting for you. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for this message given through your servant. Given through your servant. Help us to be obedient to your word. And to have a desire to do that which is right within your sight. Hallelujah. Those of you that have come, just begin talking to the king. Would you do that? Give yourself away to him. If that is your heart's desire, those of you still in your seats, give yourself to him today. Give yourself to the Lord today. Young people, give yourself to the Lord today. Trust Him with your hearts. Young adults, give yourself, give your heart to the Lord today. If you're here today and you're hurting, if you're broken, God's already aware of that before the brokenness ever arrived in your mind or in your heart. Trust the Lord with it today. Would you do that?